Her and EU, a European podcast on gender equality. Brought to you by the Martin Center with Loredana Teodorescu. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this new episode of Her and EU, a podcast on gender equality and women's role in the society. I'm Loredana Teodorescu, and our special guest of today is Esther De Lange, Vice President of the European People's Party and Vice Chair of the EPP Group in the European Parliament. Esther, thank you so much for being with us. It's a pleasure to be here. Esther, I would like to start precisely with your own personal experience as you have an impressive political career. You have been serving as a member of the European Parliament since 2007 and then in different leading positions. So I might say that you are considered as one of the EPP's most influential female MEPs. So looking back, what have been the ingredients of your success and how being a woman has impacted, has affected your career? Well, that's a difficult question. I think I've been, first of all, hardworking. That helps. Women have to work sometimes maybe a bit harder (laughs) uh, to get there. I've been hardworking. I've been intrinsically motivated to work for Europe. I think that helps. You are, it's easier to put in the hours if you're really passionate about what you do. But I have to be very honest, I was also at the right place at the right time in a way Uh, you know I've gained experience behind the scenes in Brussels I've been a lobbyist I've been uh, an APA uh, all of that so I've really worked my way up and at a certain moment I became more active within my party they put me on the list I wasn't directly elected in 2004 but I was lucky enough that two of our MEPs left uh, which meant that I was the next one on the list to take actually my boss's place, which is quite a coincidence if you only have one national list. So I went through, like I say, not even via the corridor, but there's this door between the offices of an MEP and an APA. And I went through that door and became an absolute backbencher. (laughs) So then I still had to wait, you know, make my way up in the sense that um, I had to be reelected two years later on preferential votes. And after that, I became my party's list leader. So that was a different role again. Okay, that's that's impressive. So hard working and passion, I would uh, I would say, and definitely also being a little bit lucky. This also helps uh, in life. Let's say uh, you are not an exception. Uh, we've we've seen uh, already other powerful women in leading positions, especially at the EU level. I have in mind Roberta Mezzola, uh, von der Leyen, Christine Lagarde. However, we also know that we, you are still part of a minority. Uh, so why? Why is that? What are, what are the main obstacles uh, for women in politics? Yeah, um, I mean, first of all, I think it's important to say that most of the women you mentioned are EPP women. Indeed. So the EPP doesn't just talk about gender equality, we do gender equality. And I think that's very, very important to underline. But like you say, uh, unfortunately, the equation is not yet 50-50. What is often quoted is that um, it's, it's, uh, you know, a very male-dominated working hour, structure of the week, you know, the crash finishes at seven, uh, which is already late for you know, comparing it to Dutch uh, childcare, <laughs> but it's way too early uh, for the Brussels rhythm. Uh, and it's those kind of things that help. And the fact, of course, that when I was, when I had my son 12 years ago, there was a no arrangement for maternity leave. So we were in the weird situation that we make legislation 
for maternity leave for every woman, every parent in Europe, yet there was nothing for MEPs. You were just booked or in the books as absent, as if you were not willing to show up. Well, there was a good reason for a while not to show up. And I arranged that by taking Lucas when he was only a couple of months old uh, to see Jerzyk Buzek, who was then the president of parliament, uh, mm -hmm. who was very nice with kids, by the way. So, you know, I said, Jerzy, this is, this is Lucas and it's unfair. He's the reason why I wasn't here for two and a half months. Uh, I should not be in the books as absent. You know, this was a very good reason not to be there. And that was changed, but we're not there yet. You cannot be temporarily replaced, etc. There's work to do. Indeed, uh, you are a working mom, so I guess it was hard. I can imagine that it was hard to, to find this balance between professional life, especially in your position, and then uh, the, the family sphere. But how did you manage to do it? And how are you trying now to get it easier for women? Well, I don't think we can complain, right? I mean, we, we do have the financial means to pay for help in our household. And that's a very valuable thing. Uh, and of course, there's your family around you. So I think the women on a minimum wage in Europe, trying to also look after their children, have a much harder time. So I'm, I'm very aware that I don't want to complain. But of course, it was a challenge because no matter how good your home front is, and my home front is good, it is still mom who knows where the tennis shoes are, right? So, so it does happen that I'm in a plenary meeting and I get a message, I need my tennis shoes now. Where <laughs> are they? And of course, mom knows that they're upstairs in this room in the third drawer from the left. That's me. Uh, and then I've already mentioned that I think uh, we women politicians need to make make sure that uh, leave childcare etc is okay for women also the ones who are in politics and who work very irregular hours but it's more than that it's women uh, in rural areas who are often overlooked right because the man is the farmer mm -hmm. but the women the woman is the silent force holding the family and the farm together and often they lose out if if there is a surprise in life if there's a divorce or somebody dies or you want to leave the farm to the next generation those are little things but we need and i think we as an epp that are very close to rural areas we need to be working very and we are working very hard on this and that's just one of the many many examples of course. So this brings me to your institutional role, because uh, as an MEP, as vice president of the EPP, you are dealing with uh, some of the major challenges of our times. I have in mind, for instance, uh, food security, climate change, sustainability. And we know that each of those challenges are affecting women in a different way. And it's important, therefore, to bring also women perspective. How is this relevant to your work and how are you trying to bring this women perspective in your daily work? It's relevant every day. It's relevant in all of the issues that you mentioned. So the podcast is too short to go into all of them. But to just give you an example, we have um, Europeanized, so to say, the uh, process for uh, permitting medicines to be on the market in Europe, which is a good thing because it increases availability. But medication is still tested mostly taking men as the template, so to say, uh, look at heart disease. You know, all the research is done for the average man, whereas heart disease works different in a woman. And this is just one of the many examples. What I thought was most heartbreaking was the impact of COVID on women and children 
and other vulnerable groups. I don't like other vulnerable groups because it's like women are vulnerable. We're not. We're powerful. Uh, but it's a fact that during COVID, uh, domestic violence went up. Mm-hmm. Um, more children that were in a difficult family situation uh, became very vulnerable to abuse. Mental health issues, uh, which were often overlooked here in the Brussels bubble. And I'm really happy that I have colleagues like Maria Walsh from Ireland, from the EPP, who keeps reminding us that we need (laughs) to put mental health higher on the agenda. So, yeah. And when you talk about climate, of course, we in the EPP have been extremely adamant that the Green Deal won't work if it doesn't deliver quality jobs in Europe. So it needs to go hand in hand with an industrial strategy as well, making sure there's jobs. And we need to make sure that those who are maybe who don't have the financial power to invest in the transition to make their home more climate proof, etc., that they can still do it. So I I was very proud that within this big list of, of, of laws that are part of the Green Deal, I, as a rapporteur, worked on the Social Climate Fund. And we were very keen there to make sure that we have a particular eye for women there as well. Yeah, I think that this is a very concrete example of how you are trying to to bring these uh, gender perspectives yes. in your in your work, and also very important one. We are talking about climate change, but uh, you mentioned also COVID nineteen. Of course, this was the biggest challenge of our times, and we know that this has exacerbating pre existing uh, inequalities. At the same time, I think that this is a prompt us for changes and could be also an opportunity to challenge some social dynamics in a way that benefits both men and women. So how are you looking at this phenomenon? How, uh, which are the lessons to be learned? Uh, which are the recommendations for the future? And how are you dealing with this inside uh, the special committee on the COVID-19 pandemic you are a member? Yeah, part of? we're still bang in the middle of all the work for that committee. I think it's it's very important. We have a committee that draws lessons from this pandemic. I'm afraid it might not be the last one if we're very realistic and if we believe the scientists who are specialized in this, uh, in this field. But it goes, uh, I think, beyond COVID. And what COVID has shown us as a very important lesson is, um, and, and here we come in as a political family, as an EPP as well, that the market cannot fix everything. And this is still a belief among, um, in particular, liberals, that if you leave anything just up to the market, it will be fine. Well, in crisis times, it isn't. Whether you look at COVID or whether you look at the atrocious war uh, waged by, by Russia in Ukraine, uh, having an effect on our energy prices, we are pro-market as EPP, but the market in, in weird times does weird things and that you have to intervene. But it also shows us that the state cannot resolve everything. So the whole discussion about how do you make societies, in Dutch we have a beautiful word, which is salmon living, mm-hmm. which means living together. So we call society the salmon living, the living together. And I think the challenge for the EPP is how do you make this society resilience? And sometimes that requires intervening in the market if, if it does weird things. But it, it also make, means making families stronger, making schools stronger, making family businesses and family farms stronger. And then Europe is stronger. I think this is the overall lesson that brings together 
COVID, this horrible war, you know, uh, looking into the future and what we need to do that there. I really like this expression, living together. I think that this is the It's key. nice, right? <laughs> <laughs> We need an English <laughs> word. <laughs> We need, a, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. A, a good translation. Yeah. But I think it, it, uh, it gives you exactly the, the meaning of what a resilient and also sustainable society looks like. So thank you for mentioning this. And now before concluding, I'm going back to you. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that today you are an amazing inspiration for many uh, girls and women. And uh, so I'm wondering, was there anybody who inspired you throughout your life? <laughs> um, many people, I think. And I will always be grateful to my predecessor um, who gave me as just a junior APA the space to, you know, become active voluntarily within the party, which meant I was maybe sometimes a bit less present at work or, you know, being involved in, 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 in voluntary things that I like to do. Not every boss does that. So, you know, I will always be grateful to him for, for that. Uh, when I was a student, <laughs> this is a bit of a confession. I, I don't know if my CDU colleagues will like this. When I was a student, of course, I mean, I'm the generation, just like Roberta Mazzola, of, of Erasmus. And, uh, you know, we remember the fall of the wall. Even though I was only 14, I knew that this was a big issue. And living in the Netherlands, uh, going through secondary school, towards university, uh, one of my inspirations was Helmut Kohl. Because the way he dealt with, you know, this door, which was ajar, but not yet open when it came to uh, German reuni reunification, European, you know, um, his uh, expression to say now, well, it wasn't his actually, um, but, but in Germany, you had a very strong expression at the time. Now is growing together what belongs together, uh, you know, and... It wasn't for sure that it, this would happen in a very peaceful way. And he managed to make sure that this was done more or less, you know, in, in a very peaceful manner. And uh, that was an inspiration even to the extent that um, from some German students, we got a big election poster saying Berlin Alexanderplatz, their Kanzler kommt, with Helmut Kohl on it for one of his election uh, rallies. And for years, it has been in my student home, but in the toilet. Uh, but he's still an inspiration. <laughs> Thank you. You know, students, they will just put it wherever they have a place. But it was uh, still there and still inspiring you, which is... Uh, and of course, good. I've read afterwards, I've read all, his, uh, all his, his memoirs, even to the extent that when the EPP had a meeting in, in Berlin at some point, and my, my boss allowed me as an APA to, to, to tag along which again was mm -hmm. not something that often happened. And I wanted him to sign this book, you know, one of his memoirs. Um, so I was waiting with another APA and there was a big car coming and we thought this must be him. It was minus five, it was winter. So we walked towards the car with the book and we see an expensive shoe come out from under the door and we're like, okay, it must be him. And it was Aznar. So we were already on our way and we turned around and Aznar was looking at us. Who are these weird people, you know, <laughs> coming to me and then walking away? And the next car was Cole. And I asked him in German if he, if he would please sign my book. Uh, he was also, you know, a media man. And he knew that the press was waiting for him in the lobby of the hotel, not outside. And for him, it was very good to have a groupie tagging along. Uh, so he said, just walk in with me. It was one of these revolving doors. Mm -hmm. 
I could never fit in a revolving door together with Helmut Kohl. <laughs> so I took the next, <laughs> I went just behind him and he signed the book in front of the entire German press. So it was a win-win situation for both of us, uh, I guess. But I mean, this is a lighthearted story, but his role for Europe uh, cannot be underestimated. And I'm extremely proud that he belonged to our political family. <laughs> Esther, thank you. Thank you so much for your time and for this really open uh, conversation. <laughs> and thank you to the Martin Center for making this podcast possible. And thank you all for listening. We will be back soon with a new episode of Her and EU. So stay tuned. That was today's episode of Her and EU. Subscribe to our podcast for more.